Greetings and welcome to another episode of From John to Justin, where I started out looking at every Prime Minister in Canadian history, and we're right in the middle of every opposition leader who never became Prime Minister, but we took a break from that, because an election was called. So right now I'm doing 36 election episodes in a row, to coincide with our 36 day election period. If you want to support the podcast, you can, for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there. Canadian History X, which releases every Wednesday and Saturday. Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. And Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday. I do all of these full-time. The writing, the research, everything. I do it every day, all day. And it's a lot of work. So, any dollars you give help keep it all going, and I'll make sure to thank you on the air and throughout my social media. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. The 1945 election would be the last election that William Lyon Mackenzie King would ever take part in. After leading the Liberals since 1919 through six elections prior to 1945, he would face one more contest. By the time the election rolled around on June 11th, the Second World War was winding down. The war in Europe had ended a month previous, and the war in the Pacific would end within two months. Through the past five years, the political landscape of Canada was changing as well. The Cooperative Commonwealth Federation had won the 1944 election in Saskatchewan, bringing in North America's first socialist government. At the time, many were expecting that the federal CCF would have a huge breakthrough in the federal election. A poll done a year before the election actually found that the CCF led by one point over the Conservatives and the Liberals. As such, the party expected they would win 70 to even 100 seats in the next election. At the start of 1945, another Gallup poll asked Canadians what government they wanted to lead the country after the war. The Liberals led with 28%, followed by the Progressive Conservatives at 21%, the CCF at 17%, other at 13%, and undecided at 21%. The Conservatives had also gone through a change. Now called the Progressive Conservatives, they were led by John Bracken, the man who was the Premier of Manitoba for 20 years, longer than anyone else. The name change came about thanks to Bracken, who insisted on it if he was going to serve as leader. King would write in his diary, quote, he owes his long tenure of office to the Liberals, who have supported him and the Progressives. He owes nothing to the Tories. He has made a fool suggestion that the party should be called the Progressive Conservatives. This after being a leader of the Liberal Progressive Party. End quote. Since 1940, the Conservatives had also gone through three leaders with Bracken the new man at the job. Arthur Meehan had returned to leadership briefly, but when he didn't win his re-election in a safe riding thanks to King orchestrating support for the CCF candidate, he soon retired from politics. Bracken, believing that the war in the Pacific would be a long affair, advocated for conscription. What he did not know, but King likely did, was that the United States developed the atomic bomb. It is likely that with this knowledge, King knew that the war would be over soon, and he did not advocate for conscription at all in the election. The push for conscription, without doubt, hurt the chances of the Conservatives nationwide. The election would be announced by King on April 12, 1945. It also happened to be the day that King's friend, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, passed away. King would write in his diary on that day, quote, In my heart, I feel a great gratitude for having been privileged to know the President so well, and particularly for the last happy days we had together. End quote. 
In a report published during the election campaign, it was found that among most Canadians, there was no real issues in the forefront of voters' minds. Supporters of the three major parties did put their reasons for voting for a party. The majority of Liberal supporters said they felt King and his government had done a good job and the war record was an example of that. For Progressive Conservatives, the main reasons were that the voters had always voted Conservative and they were dissatisfied with the Liberal government. Among the CCF voters, the main reason for voting for the party was that the voter did not like the other two parties and that they felt the CCF were looking out for the small man and the working man. The Liberals would campaign on the slogan of Return the Mackenzie King Government, which was simple and argued that the Liberal Party would represent all the provinces equally. King also pledged that if he was not elected with a majority, he would call another election immediately. He would state, quote, We would have confusion to deal with at the time, when the world would be in a very disturbed situation. The war in Europe is over, but unrest in the East is not over. End quote. Here in Edmonton, Alberta, during the last provincial election, the Junior Chamber of Commerce arranged a huge youth rally. One by one, the candidates faced the audience, spoke and were questioned for the teenage voters of Alberta were going to use their ballot. The business of the people is government, and John Citizen received, almost hourly, reminders that he ruled the province with his ballot. His daily newspaper told him to vote. His radio spoke, your ballot is being bought with blood, use it. In his mailbox, a leaflet appeared. He saw posters and sandwich boards on the street. He heard the sound truck mobilizing him for one day, Voters' Day. Rights and privileges can wither and die if they are not used. Mr. Citizen at the local race meet is greeted by usherettes with armbands. Be sure to vote. The public address system speaks forth. That curtain booth is symbolic of democracy. Use your vote. At home, his telephone rings and the voice says, Vote as you please, but please vote. The local youth club is knocking on his door. A radio skit urges him to vote. His newspaper calls him to get his name on the voters list. His teenage sons and daughters are asking him to vote and want his help in guessing the total number of ballots to be cast on election day. The guessing is high. These teenagers are presenting stage plays, distributing club leaflets, urging their elders to set the example and vote. All through the city streets, posters proclaim, good citizens use their ballot. Employer and employee have their heads together, arranging for voting time. The mail carrier brings letters marked, vote as you please, but please vote. Again this year, Edmonton youth groups are holding a rally of the voters. Young people are calling on parents and friends, on every citizen in a splurge of democratic activity, urging that they attend the ballot box meeting and vote. Every service club meeting, every sports event, on every movie screen, even the serviette in favorite eating places will urge, be sure to vote. From nearly every pulpit, the strength of the voter is being assembled. From the democratic heart of Canada's millions, the voter is reminded. The ballot is the key to freedom. Democracy demands its use. The Edmonton Junior Chamber of Commerce urges, get out and vote on June the 11th. The Liberals also ran on a slogan of build a new social order, advocating for new welfare programs as the social welfare movement was gaining steam in Canada. The platform included $750 million for land, jobs, and veteran support, $400 million to build housing, $250 million for family allowances, tax reductions, and loans for farmers. The platform, which amounted to about $1.5 billion in pledges, would be equal to $23.2 billion today. Liberal literature would state, quote, 
If the Liberals were re-elected, there would be farm improvement loans, more homes, better labor conditions, reduced taxation, veterans' benefits, and above all, family allowances. End quote. Throughout my life, the enlargement of opportunities for those less fortunately situated in the struggle for existence has been an abiding interest. I believe I have a right to feel some pride in the part which I had as long ago as 1900 in the establishment of a Department of Labor for Canada. In the part I have since had in the development of machinery for the peaceful settlement of industrial disputes, in the introduction of old age pensions, of pensions for the blind, of veterans' pensions and gratuities, of unemployment insurance, and of floors under farm and fish prices, and in the battle against inflation. All these measures are designed to provide insurance against major social hazards, and all of them represent liberal achievements. Today... Today we face a greater opportunity than ever before to advance the cause of social reform. In that new advance in social progress, a great step forward has been taken in the enactment of family allowances. The government recognizes that the family and the home are the foundation of national life, and that any measure which strengthens the family and the home will strengthen the nation. The experience of war has surely taught us that if we are to expect our citizens to share equally in the burdens and obligations of citizenship, we must first seek to give to them an equality of opportunity in the battle of life. After the progressive conservatives had had a massive win only one week before the federal election in the Ontario provincial election, picking up 66 of 90 seats, the federal party rallied on the slogan of Ontario shows only Bracken can win. And they suggested that to win a majority, Ontario had to go behind the conservative banner. Originally, the Ontario election was supposed to happen on June 11th, but this was changed as a result of the federal election. Under the conservatives, the people's charter would be adapted. The charter included the right for every man to have a job at a fair day's pay, the right to a fair return on investment, the right to have equal opportunity for health, the right to have a security against loss of income, and the right of future generations to a world of plenty. The CCF campaigned on the slogan of Work, Security, and Freedom for All with the CCF, and promised to retain high taxes on the rich and to put money to fund social services while also abolishing the Senate. In Alberta, the Social Credit Party was doing well, so the Federal Party ran on the platform of Good Government in Alberta, Why Not in Ottawa? With tens of thousands of soldiers still overseas in Europe, ballots had to be shipped out to them so they could vote. And the election would feature 751 candidates, and the campaign itself would not get going until May 12th, a week after the war in Europe had ended. The Liberals would put forward 200 candidates, while the Progressive Conservatives had 185, the same number as the CCF. King would begin his election campaign on May 16th due to spending the previous three weeks in San Francisco where he was part of the Canadian delegation that would help found the United Nations. He would say in his first speech, quote, I'm very happy to be back in Canada and on the shore of the Pacific. 
I trust you will support the government of the day. We promise to do the best we can in your interests. End quote. When asked if Canada would be taking part in the Pacific War, King would say, quote, I think the present administration can be trusted to carry on the Pacific War after the record in Europe. It is always better to have a performance than promises in matters of government. End quote. I do not wish to let today go by <clears throat> without saying something to you on the all-important subject of national unity. What I have seen in the course of my present tour of Western Canada has impressed me more than ever with the great importance of the preservation of national unity if the policies we are so anxious to further are to have a chance of succeeding. If we fail in preserving national unity, we shall fail in all else that we undertake, for in the preservation of national unity lies our very existence as a nation. Of all problems a government is called upon to face in Canada, the greatest and the gravest is the preservation of national unity. In the years that I have been in public life, there is no objective which I have kept so constantly before me. I have made it the guiding star of the several administrations of which I have been the head. Without national unity, a country cannot successfully defend itself. Without national unity, a country can have no influence in the world. Without national unity, a country cannot hope to promote the prosperity and well-being of its people. Bracken would state on May 24th regarding the Pacific War that no one expected Canada to support beyond, quote, our just share to the Pacific War on our allies. The electors of Canada know well how to deal with government which leaves us in the position before the nations which fought by our side so magnificently in Europe, end quote. In the days before the election, King would state that he was confident in an election win, stating that he never felt better in his life. He would add that this would be the last general election for him. The day before the election, he seemed to be even more confident, stating, quote, The signs are all in one direction, that Canada is to have a strong government under the Liberal Party for the next five years, as it has had in the past five years, end quote. The final Gallup poll showed the Liberals with 39% of the vote, the Progressive Conservatives with 29%, and the CCF with 17%. Overall, the election provided a bit of a surprise to many. The Liberals once again won, but it was with a minority government. The party had lost 59 seats to finish with 118, while the Progressive Conservatives gained 27 seats to finish with 67. Prime Minister King also lost his seat in the election and was re-elected in a safe seat in Glengarry, Ontario. The loss was double tragic as King's election agent and Prince Albert had only died days before the election. And in seven years, John Diefenbaker would win King's old seat in Prince Albert and hold it until his death in 1979. The CCF came nowhere near winning 70 seats, but they did gain 20 seats and finished with 28 in total, while the Social Credit Party came in fourth with 13 seats, all in Alberta, a gain of three from the previous election. The Conservatives once again took over Ontario, winning 48 seats, while the Liberals won 34. In Quebec, the shutting out of the Conservatives continued. Only one Conservative won in the province, while 47 Liberals won. The Liberals also dominated in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Manitoba. The Manitoba result, with only two Conservatives winning, was surprising considering the party was led by the man who served as Premier of that province for so long. The CCF took 18 of 21 seats in Saskatchewan, 
while those three parties split the vote in British Columbia. As I mentioned, in Alberta, the Social Credit Party won 13 of 17 seats. There were also eight independents. Those eight independents were liberals, and they had split with the party over conscription. With the war in Europe over, conscription was no longer an issue, so those independents aligned themselves with King and the liberals, giving the party a working majority in the House of Commons. There would be some unusual incidents in the election as well. Five people required treatment at the hospital after a raid by 30 men of the committee rooms of Roger Duhamel, who represented the Bloc Populaire Party in Montreal. At the Victoria Machinery Depot Company and Yarrow's Limited in Victoria, workers dropped their tools at exactly 2.30pm and left their work to vote even though the plants were not supposed to close until 4pm. A violent thunderstorm caused problems in getting her election results from two ridings in Quebec, and one man, Jarvis Raymond of Wallaceburg, Ontario, was so keen to vote in the election that when he had trouble securing transportation, he grabbed a motorcycle, which he then crashed en route. He would break his leg in the crash and was sent to hospital, and in the end, couldn't put in his ballot. King would speak the following day after he received a telegram from Bracken that congratulated him on the election win. He would state, quote, There is no longer any doubt that the result of today's voting means the continuance in office of a liberal administration with a majority over the combined total of representatives of all other parties in the House. For his expression of confidence in the present administration, I cannot thank you too warmly on behalf of all members of government. End quote. Bracken would say in his concession speech, quote, The people of Canada have spoken. The returns so far indicate the Prime Minister will be able to form a government to carry on. They also indicate that the opposition in Parliament will be much stronger than before. The years ahead will be difficult ones, and the opposition will contribute in a constructive way to the tasks they bring. End quote. With the election loss, the Conservatives grew disenchanted with their leader. As Maclean's would write in 1947, quote, It is no secret that for two years past, a fairly substantial faction of Conservatives have been acutely dissatisfied with Mr. Bracken's leadership. This group was strengthened when, in the 1945 general election, Mr. Bracken failed to capture the West for his party. That was what he had been brought in to do, and he hadn't done it. End quote. Bracken would be out as leader by 1948. From when R.B. Bennett retired to the arrival of John Diefenbaker, the Conservatives would go through five leaders, including three in only ten years. For the party, these years were tough years, but there was light at the end of the tunnel. And as for the Liberals, the best years were still to come. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the 1945 election. Tomorrow, we're looking at the 1949 election. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. Again, if you like, you can support the podcast through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. You can also donate to the podcast by going to canadaehx.com and clicking Donate. And I'd like to say thank you to all of my wonderful patrons, and if I mispronounce any names, I do apologize. Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, one anonymous person who I really appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, and Iris Gray. 
Information from Dynasties and Interludes, Maclean's, Library and Archives Canada, Wikipedia, The Ottawa Citizen, Ottawa Journal, and The Vancouver Sun. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.